This evening I'd like to talk about the ways in which we create and shape our world or our perception of our reality in a way in which the world becomes a personal world. In Buddhist teaching, the story of Siddhartha's awakening or enlightenment is one of the most profound and inspiring stories that's told. And in that story it said that when Siddhartha sat beneath the Bodhi tree on the eve of his awakening, that he sat with an unshakable resolve, an unshakable commitment to be present and to be still until he understood what it meant to be free until he understood what it meant to be awake, to awaken to what was true. And in the passing of that night, it said that Siddhartha was besieged by all of the forces of Mara or delusion that attempted to divert Siddhartha from his intention and commitment that Mara appeared in the form of promising pleasure and delight, that Mara appeared in the form of lust and greed, that Mara appeared in the form of anger and hatred, and that Mara appeared in the form of doubt, questioning Siddhartha's right to sit beneath a tree or to seek for awakening. And in this story, it's told that the response of Siddhartha was not one of resistance or agitation or fear. He didn't jump off his cushion and go running into the forest. But rather, Siddhartha said to these various forces of Mara simply, I know you. I know you. And with that clear and simple acknowledgement, brought to those forces of Mara or distraction or delusion the intention to open wholeheartedly and to see clearly, to be present in the midst of all of those forces without resistance and without craving. And it's said that that very clarity of intention, that very clarity of commitment, had the power to dissolve the forces of Mara and the symbols that are used in that story is that the poisonous arrows of Mara, when they met with the unshakable resolve of Siddhartha, were transformed into flowers. Most Buddhist stories have a happy ending. Now this story of Siddhartha, it is a story of commitment. It's a story of vision. And it is certainly a story of very profound and clear intention. It is the presence of these qualities within the story of Siddhartha that actually makes that story into a very timeless and universal story. A story that inspires many of us that we all draw upon. This story of Siddhartha is not just a story of one particular historical figure or person. It is universal, I think, in its symbology. 
found not just in the Buddhist tradition, but in many ways the story of Siddhartha's awakening is, a, is an archetypal story. It's a story that's found within all traditions. That story of Siddhartha's awakening is really a story of a pilgrimage, a story of a quest, a story of someone making a sacred journey. We can imagine how very different that story of Siddhartha would be if it was really missing these qualities of commitment and vision and clear intention. You know, how intrigued would we be if we, you know, listen to a story of some confused person, you know, wandering around, lost in the forest, who just happened to stumble across this tree and think, oh, well, you know, maybe it's a good idea if I hung out for a while here, you know, and see what happens, and, you know, maybe I'll get enlightened, and maybe I won't, and... You know, if it's too hot or there's too many mosquitoes, I'll go home and, you know, continue partying at the palace. Well, it's not that exciting or inspiring a story, you know. It it would feel like an accident. It would feel like an accident. As if there was no relationship between that inner world of that person and what actually unfolded and arose from that inner world. Awakening, fortunately, may have something to do with a quality of grace, but awakening to what is true, awakening to a freer way of being, is actually not an accident. It would also not be true to say that it's caused by my will or my thoughts or my ambitions or my ideals or my goals. But somewhere between those two extremes of life just being an accident and life just being produced by my desires and ambitions, there is a middle path. And that middle path is really what our practice is actually all about. It is a path where we really are exploring the power of our own intentionality, the power of our own vision, the power of our own dedication on a moment-to-moment level in practice. As we practice, we are exploring really what it is on a very profound level, beneath our thoughts, beneath our concepts, beneath our passing desires and ambitions, What is it that we value in this life? What is it that has meaning for us? What is it that we seek for that brings richness, that brings completeness, that has nothing to do necessarily with kind of the passing objects or phenomena of our world? And when we come into a retreat environment or a retreat center, we are invited to look upon this time as entering into a sacred space. For everyone who comes on a retreat, we are all, in very real ways, as I mentioned yesterday, making our own pilgrimage, undertaking our own journey of opening, of discovery, of revelation. 
In making that pilgrimage, it doesn't imply that our journey is going to look exactly the same as somebody else's. It doesn't imply that we should be trying to (coughs) copy or emulate the insights of another person or pursue their dreams or aspirations. Because when we come into our pilgrimage, our own journey, We bring with us our own stories and our own histories that in many ways may be somewhat unique to us. Yet within every person's journey who comes to Gaia House, whoever enters into a journey of discovery and exploration, we will find some parallel themes and qualities that we share with each other, that I shared with the person, Siddhartha, who made this journey, parallel themes and qualities that I shared with every single person who ever undertakes a process of inner exploration. It's very unlikely that any of us actually ended up on this journey by accident, you know, roaming around Devon and suddenly thought, you know, oh good, I'll just drop in and sit down in the cushion for some days. Most of us come to meditation through a curious process of guidance, I think. You know, there are the pieces of all of our puzzles where we've, you know, read the books and we've listened to the stories of other people, um, all of which perhaps have had something to do with sparking some quality of inspiration within ourselves. Yet the inspiration that is sparked through listening to other people or through reading the books or hearing the stories or whatever, somehow that inspiration sparks a quality of intuition, I believe, that we carry with us most often right through our lives. And that intuition is often the guiding force that really means that we actually show up on a retreat or actually have a very tangible sense of undertaking a journey. The intuition that often guides us is a heartfelt longing for the end of suffering and conflict, the end of separation. Often a heartfelt longing for peace, for understanding, for freedom. A longing to find a way to let go through wisdom and through compassion the causes of suffering and sorrow. And a longing to find the way to nurture through wisdom and compassion the qualities of heart and mind that lead to freedom and to oneness. Now in this story of Siddhartha, you know, He had this, um, you might call a fast-track approach, where he was kind of besieged and assaulted by the forces of Mara in the passing of a single night, you know, and those forces of Mara were dissolved in that passing of the single night by the power of vision and clear intention. Now, obviously, that story describes something of a rather ideal world. We may find in meditation that our particular array of of 
obscurations or obstructions or hindrances um, may actually last a little longer than one night. And that some of them may very well be repeat visitors. You know, we keep bumping into these same patterns over and over again. We also, I think, though, realize that our own forces of obscuration, our own forces of, of distraction or confusion, are not dissolved by willpower. They're not dissolved by forcing, by restlessness, or by agitation. But that actually our own areas of confusion are darkness very much as in the story of Siddhartha, will be dissolved by our, both by our capacity to say, I know you, and by our own capacities for clear intention and vision. In the Mahayana traditions, in many of the Mahayana traditions, you probably read some of the countless stories that Describe the ways in which potential yogis or meditators are kind of put through a testing period before they're permitted to meditate. You know, you've probably heard the stories of people being left to wait outside the temple gates or being sent to the kitchen to perform lowly tasks to kind of it seems, in a way, to, to prove themselves before they are welcomed into the path of meditation. These, these stories are not intended to um, portray a kind of pun way of punishing aspiring yogis. And I don't think they're intended to portray, um, you know, that we have to, in some way, prove our worthiness. I think the very message or the, the key element of many of these stories is the value of taking time to reflect upon what actually moves us to meditate. Of taking the time to reflect upon what our intention actually is as we sit, as we walk, as we practice not only in formal meditation, but appreciating the ways in which intention and clarity of intention actually affects almost everything that we do in our lives, our relationships with others, how we approach our work, not only how we approach our meditation, but how we approach our lives. Now, these stories that our embassy kind of replayed from the Mahayana traditions, they're not just kind of historical stories. They are very much kind of in vogue today. When I first began to practice, I, you know, coming from a very Western background, I, I thought it was kind of like a, going into a restaurant and ordering a meal, you know, that you just sort of turned up and said, I'd like this, you know, and it would be delivered. And I was a little surprised, I must say, when I first approached my first teacher and asked to be taught meditation and actually was just uh, sent away. And how that, that experience of being turned down happened every day, actually, for many weeks. Um, 
And then eventually, one day after many weeks, going again to ask him if he would uh, teach me how to practice, he gave me a box of noodles, which was my sign of being welcomed, apparently, and accepted as a student. But I obviously didn't learn very much from those very many weeks of being turned down and sent away, because no, lo- no sooner did I receive my box of noodles than I said to the, my teacher, I'd like to learn Tantra. You know, and he sort of looked at me, and instead of teaching me this kind of you know, short-order Tantra lesson, he um, sent me actually away to do very many months of reflection upon motivation um, and intention and inspiration and commitment. This emphasis upon clear intention is really very much at the heart of the whole of the meditative path. A retreat is a time of reflection, of pausing, of returning home to ourselves. And in this time of reflection and pausing, for this period of time we put to one side, temporarily, many of the entanglements of our world, the variety of our life commitments, and we take this time of simplicity and dedication, caring for just one moment at a time. And in a very real way, in that simplifying, I think we have a sense, or begin more and more clearly to have a sense, that this time of meditation or this time of retreat does have a very clear intention, that it is in the service of being awake. It is in the service of wakefulness, that this time of retreat is in the service of understanding and awareness. You know, we get that message. You know, sometimes it takes a little time, but we do get that message. We see that that intention that we can begin to feel as something within ourselves, a very powerful force in ourselves, to be awake and to be aware, is actually what makes a retreat or this space for us into a sacred space. You know, this space doesn't become a sacred space because we have, you know, Tara statues or Buddha pictures or silence or any of those things. There is nothing intrinsically sacred, I would say, in any particular location. What it is that makes all moments all places, all times, sacred in our lives is the intention that we bring. In many ways, we could say that our lives are flavored by our intentions. Our lives, our world, are shaped by our intentions. Now, many times when we come on retreat, we come often with quite a generalized sense of intention. You know, these generalized intentions we also have in our lives. Like probably, you know, if we all sat down and talked about what we looked for in relationships with other people or in communication or, you know, in our work or in our lives, you know, we would probably all agree that, you know, that we look for happiness, we look for meaning, we look for intimacy and closeness, 
we look for understanding. And, you know, there, pretty much we could rely upon this being a pretty shared and collective agreement. You know, there may be one or two people on a curious path, you know, who say that they're looking for conflict and separation and struggle and disharmony, but mostly we would agree that, you know, these other areas of happiness, well-being, fulfillment, are very much the kind of generalized intentions that we bring to our lives. Now, when we come on into meditation, we probably also have a background sense of intention. You know, again, most people don't come to meditation looking for trouble, you know, or looking for more suffering or more sorrow. Um, most often we come to meditation looking for pathways of clarity, looking for pathways of understanding and compassion. These generalized intentions, you know, this kind of umbrella of intention is powerful enough to get us here. It's, they're powerful enough to actually get us onto a cushion. But once we arrive on the cushion, just as once we arrive in the reality of our lives of actually speaking to another person, of actually looking for meaning in our work, of actually trying to find in very real situations intimacy and understanding, the same when we actually find ourselves arriving upon a cushion. We are asked actually to really look not to generalized intentions, but to the power of very clear, very conscious and very applied intentionality. We know, all of us, that there are a whole lot of different ways of sitting on a cushion. You know, for example, you know, you may have noticed today, you know, like, you look around you and, you know, people say, you know, everybody's so still. You know, there's a lot of very experienced yogis here, you know. They're really calm and they're, you know, their posture's so upright and they sit so still. You know, and we look around and we see, you know, we can look great in meditation, you know. I mean, we can have the right uniform and the right posture, you know, and look like we're really, you know, really holy even, you know, when we sit. And yet we all know that there are so many different things that can be happening under the facade of that right uniform and right posture. I mean, we can look terrific and inwardly, you know, we can be planning our vacations, you know, or replaying our stories of last Christmas or uh, planning our next Christmas, you know, or entertaining all kinds of, you know, very pleasant or very horrific fantasies or, you know, making shopping. There's so many things that can be going on. And nobody knows. That's a very interesting part about it. Nobody else actually knows what you do when you sit. That's so fascinating. I have no idea. You know, sometimes people like to attribute to retreat teachers this capacity to sort of read their minds or something. Thank goodness this is not true. I don't think that would be good news for anybody to be able to listen in to somebody else's world at this point. There are no psychic spies. You are actually the only one who knows what you're doing when you sit. That's a remarkable thing. 
I am the only one who knows what I'm doing when I sit. When we sit, we all know that our inner world can be very busy and very full. When we sit, we meet many of the shadows and many of the demons of our lives. We meet the forces of our hearts and minds that are sometimes difficult and sometimes painful to be with. Sometimes we meet with mental states just of dullness or negativity or fear or anxiety. Sometimes the things that we meet are not easy to be with. We also know that when we sit, how very easy it is to kind of wander on and on in very familiar territory, you know, repeating the same thoughts over and over again. You know, sometimes, you know, the thoughts you've had today, how many of them have you never had before? Often we wander on and on within the, the, the stories, the same stories we've played, a thou- we've played a thousand times. The same questions, the same judgments, the same territory. And it's easy to get lost. It's easy to feel like we just get kind of bossed around by our minds, you know, just pushed and pulled in this direction and then in that direction from one mental state to another. This is the place it is because of these, this inclination of the mind to go towards what is familiar, to become lost, to become entangled. This is why there is a tremendous amount of power in cultivating clear intention. Because within that maze of familiarity, within that maze of confusion, clear intention is like a guiding light. It is like a guiding light that, that shows us the way through. It is the place of clear and applied intention, of knowing what our practice is in the service of, of knowing what every sitting is in the service of, of knowing what every walking is actually dedicated to, knowing what every sitting is actually committed to. You know, to take those moments to question what is this in the service of when you come and sit on your cushion? What is it committed to? What is it dedicated to? It is a power that is cultivated within ourselves. The Buddha spoke about different kinds of intention and the ways in which our world is actually shaped by those different kinds of intention. On one side, he put the intentions of mind, or the inclinations of mind, which he says leads us to create a world of sorrow, leads us to create a world of pain and conflict. They are intentions that arise from our conditioning that arise from our habit patterns and our fears and our anxieties and our sense of separateness. He said one of those intentions that creates or leads towards creating a world of confusion and sorrow is the intention or the inclination of the mind that arises 
towards grasping and craving, to that intention or inclination of the mind that arises in a way of hungriness, you know, and all of the things that come from that inclination of mind which inclines towards hungriness. You know, the feeling of never having enough, the feeling of wanting, of demands, of expectations, of comparisons, of judgment, the inclination of grasping or uh, that are, uh, and craving that leads us to try and always be finding and holding on to that, only that which is pleasant, and then rejecting everything else that is unpleasant or painful. He said, another intention or another inclination of mind that arises from our conditioning that leads us to create a world of sorrow is the inclination of mind or the intention of mind towards aversion or ill will and all of the things that come from that inclination of mind towards aversion or ill will. You know, the negativities, the judgments, the condemnations, the rejections, the denials, the tensions, etc., etc. He said, in the third inclination of mind, that leads us to create a world of sorrow both inwardly and outwardly is the intention or the inclination of mind towards harshness or cruelty. The inclination of mind that is non-accepting, that doesn't allow us to accept, that is rejecting. And on the other side, I'm going to say in this kind of way of describing the Buddha had, on the other side he placed the intentions are the inclinations of mind that lead us to form on a moment-to-moment level an inner and outer world of happiness and well-being and contentment and fulfillment. And these intentions were never, were never presented in a way of being somehow ideals that we should you know, strive to or picture as, as living in some far-off destination. But rather that these intentions are actually something that we can cultivate, that we can foster in a very real way, on a very moment-to-moment level, in our meditation and in our lives. And he said that these, these intentions lead us towards fulfillment, towards peace and well-being. He said one of those intentions that leads us towards shaping a world of well-being is the intention towards letting go, the intention towards renunciation, and all of that which is born of letting go and renunciation. Simplicity, appreciation, gratitude, sensitivity, the capacity to see clearly. He said another of the inclinations are the intentions that we can cultivate on a moment-to-moment level in our practice and in our lives that leads to well-being and to happiness is the intention towards loving-kindness and friendliness, the willingness to accept and to embrace, to be present with, without conditions, without prejudice. And the other inclination is the inclination, the intention towards compassion, and the forgiveness and generosity of heart that is born of compassion. And he said that these are the intentions or the inclinations of our minds that when we cultivate and foster them, and that when we live in accord with them, 
that they lead, lead to the well-being and to the happiness of ourselves and others, that they nourish wisdom and understanding, that they bring clarity and that they lead to freedom. And there's a whole range of intentions that the Buddha mentioned, didn't mention. You know, like the Buddha never talked about cultivating the intention to dwell on things, to analyze things, to try and fix things, or to try and seek for perfection. But spoke about this very direct link between our intentionality in the moment and the way in which our world is shaped in this moment. The kind of world that we then come to inhabit. He went on to say that what we frequently think and dwell upon will become the inclination of our mind. That what we frequently think and dwell upon will become the inclination, or in other words, become the habit of our mind. That our mind gets molded into a particular shape by what we frequently think and dwell upon. In other words, what we pay attention to, what we give attention to in our life, shapes and flavors and forms our world inwardly and outwardly on a moment-to-moment level. What we pay attention to, the way in which we pay attention, is also shaped and formed by our intention. A wise and compassionate attention is formed by wise and compassionate intention. Unwise and harsh attention is formed by unwise and harsh intention. I think we see this very, the reality of this very clearly over and over in our lives. You know, there's a story of a man, a farmer, who one day his axe went missing. And he looked everywhere for his axe and he couldn't find it. And he began to wonder what had happened to his axe. And then... As he was searching for his axe, his eyes happened to fall on the child of his neighbor, the son of his neighbor. And suddenly he had this thought, "Uh aha, he probably took my axe. And the more that he looked at the child and the more that he fostered and entertained this thought, the more that the child seemed to look like a thief. The more he seemed to walk like a thief, the more he seemed to act like a thief. He seemed to speak like a thief. He had the eyes of a thief. And one day, as in the midst of this, the man found his axe. And suddenly his neighbor's child looked just like any other child. We see this in our own experience again and again. You know, if you look at your experience on retreats, you know, sometimes as I was speaking about yesterday evening, we can form, you know, very particular relationships with people on retreat in silence. And sometimes, you know, maybe there is a person that we feel, you know, really quite fond of or or connected with in some way. You know, there's something we like about them. You know, we admire them in some way. And so we think about them. You know, we pay attention to them. We think about them with this, this, this inclination of liking, you know, this inclination of fondness. And then we feel concerned about them. You know, maybe we see them, they come in the meditation room and... You know, maybe they look a little uncomfortable, you know, and we, we, we kind of have our ear out for them and we hear them rustling around and shuffling around and, you know, we feel this great sense of concern and compassion, you know, maybe we should get them a hot water bottle or, 
you know, offer them some tiger balm or, you know, I wonder if they're okay. Maybe I should ask one of the managers or, and check in on them if they're in pain. Or feel very concerned about them. You know, so, now suppose there's another person on the retreat, actually, that we don't actually feel that fond of, you know. And we also give attention to them, because in, but in a different way. Because they really annoy us in some way, you know, the way they comb their hair or don't comb their hair, or, you know, the way they dress or walk. And that person, too, comes in the meditation room, doing exactly the same thing as that person we like. You know, they're shuffling around on their cushion, too, you know. And we have an ear out for them also. What kind of thoughts are nice? Do we feel concerned about them? You know, do we want to offer them a hot water bottle, you know, and look after them? Or instead, do we find ourselves thinking, you know, why don't they just sit still? You know, why, why are they so restless? You know, why are they annoying me in that way? There's something really off about them. You know, the same world being shaped in a different way, depending on the quality of attention we bring, depending on the intention that is present. We are very often not even aware of the intentions that lie behind the ways in which our thoughts and feelings actually settle. Or sometimes it feels that we actually have very little choice about the thoughts or feelings that arise, you know. And in our more despairing moments, we just say, oh, that's just the way I am. You know, that's just who I am. That's just the way my mind works. Well, you know, the news is in meditation there is no one way that the mind works. Everything's up for question here. You know, everything's open to question. There are no assumptions that that is just the way I am or that is just the way my mind works. But I think we experience this sense of not having any choices, that of our, of our responses somehow being choiceless, somehow that our responses are at times it feels like they draw upon almost like a bottomless well of conditioning, you know, of likes and dislikes, of aversions and, and habits and judgments and cravings, etc., etc. You know, sometimes it feels like that, that well of conditioning is just waiting for that moment of spark to kind of spring forth and then direct our actions and direct our responses that we feel pushed and pulled apart by and that very much shape our world on a moment-to-moment -moment level. I think that's true for many people, you know. They, they don't get up in the morning decide to hate their neighbor, you know, or, you know, you don't get up in the morning deciding it's, you know, it's a great day to feel depressed, you know, or, you know, it's a great day to have a mind that's really chaotic. Most of us don't get up in the morning thinking that way, you know, and it just seems that these things happen, choices things. You know, and sometimes we feel that that choicelessness is, is kind of reinforced by the fact that maybe we come from a long line of, you know, people who were depressed or people who were critical or people who were, you know, filled with despair. What happens in meditation is that there is, there is a process to this and there is a curious and yet very real and profound shift that happens within ourselves where we actually move from a place of choicelessness, that choicelessness of just feeling pushed and pulled by our conditioning, to a place of greater choice, to another place of a different quality of choicelessness. Now, that what happens in our practice, instead of just consenting automatically 
to being pushed and pulled and believing so much in these creations, uh, the way I wonder, which our world is created by the mind or our feelings, instead of consenting to just being pushed and pulled by our momentary likes or dislikes or aversions or cravings, what we actually do is we learn to pause, don't we? That's what we're doing when we practice. We're learning to introduce that light of mindful attentiveness. We are learning how to pause in every moment and to question, you know, is this really true? Is this really in the service of well-being? Is this really in the service of happiness and freedom? Or is it in the service of suffering and conflict? And that capacity to pause, it's like opening a window in a stuffy room. You know, or it's like bringing a little bit of light into a room which is very dark. Suddenly we feel that we're not so automatically compelled or pushed, but we see that perhaps there are choices. Perhaps we see that there are different pathways that can be followed in this moment that maybe a more skillful or a kinder or a wiser way to be in this moment might be to cultivate perhaps the intention to let go, perhaps the intention towards loving kindness and friendliness, perhaps the intention towards compassion, rather than following perhaps the more conditioned pathways of aversion or grasping or, or harshness. We see that there's other possibilities. And that is what meditation offers us. Meditation offers us this world of possibilities. We begin to see that there are choices. As we travel those pathways of choices based upon wisdom, we begin to very experientially see that loving kindness does lead to happiness, that letting go does lead to freedom, that compassion does lead does lead to an all-embracing, all-inclusive way of being in this world gently. We see that these are choices that in very real and very profound ways lead to happiness, lead towards understanding, lead towards closeness, and lead towards freedom. The more deeply that we see that relationship within ourselves through the making of wise choices, do we actually move more and more clearly into a place of choicelessness. A place of choicelessness. A different kind of choicelessness. Because we wouldn't consciously choose to follow a pathway of suffering. But instead, our choices, our ways of being in this world, begin to arise and emerge much more organically from this place of wisdom, this place of deep understanding, this place of commitment to well-being and happiness. The shape of our world changes as the shape of our minds and heart changes. Now, wise intention is actually something to give a great deal of attention to in our practice. You know, instead of just being very automatic or mechanical in our practice, when we sit down, it is very worthwhile to take a moment and to say, what is this time in the service of? What is this moment, this, this period actually dedicated to? Is my intention here to let go? Is my intention here to cultivate loving kindness? Is my intention here to cultivate compassion? 
And it's not like we need to keep repeating that like some sort of mantra. We don't need to keep repeating that like a mantra. It is like a seed that we are sowing within our consciousness and our hearts and minds respond to that seed. They begin to follow those pathways. They begin to to bring that light and intention actually begins to shape the kind of attention we bring. And our worlds, our hearts and minds actually begin to undergo a process of transformation as we see what it is that leads to well-being, what it leads to understanding, what leads to oneness, and what leads towards freedom. If we take a couple of moments, just quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.